Good morning and welcome to this part of our service. I too have certainly enjoyed the Sunday school lesson and uh, it was a very good thing to look at the book of Hebrews the last several months. Also appreciated that song we just sung. Um, someday the gems will be reduced to common dust. I kind of like that uh, that wording. I guess the way it works out, it's my turn to preach this morning. So I kind of, if you remember the last time I preached, I uh, I preached on the subject that I entitled the divorce dilemma. And I, um, if you remember, I kind of crash landed that because I was um, um, I was in the in the uh, process of taking you through the scripture and just methodically reading through the passages that the Bible has outlined that speak specifically to the subject of divorce and remarriage. And I didn't quite get through that, so we're just going to take up where we left off the last time and continue to visit a few scriptures, and then we're going to pivot and uh, look at another part of this for the remainder of the message. And we may or may not get through it. We'll see how time allows us. So turn with me to uh, Luke 16 for the next passage that we want to look at here in the kind of a of a brief journey through the Bible um, on this matter. We looked at the uh, at the Matthew and uh, the two uh, the two passages in Matthew that dealt with the subject. We looked at the one in Mark, which was very similar to the uh, one in Matthew, and uh, except if you remember, I pointed out that. The exception clause, as it's known, that appears in both of Matthew's text was not in Mark's text. And neither is it here in Luke's text. And the, the, um, the, the um, subject here is addressed in Luke in one verse, and that comes in Luke 16 and verse 18. There's just one verse here. And Jesus puts it like this, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Now, if you if you stop and you consider the, the broader context of this passage, it would almost appear that this, this is like a verse out of place. It's like, what does this verse have anything to do with the verses that surround it? And I would like to just address that just a little bit because as I looked at it, at first I was like, okay, how does this fit into the context? But if you, if you go back up to verse 15, and we'll just read that, and Jesus said unto them, ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus here is des- describing a common problem that apparently was in that day, and I would say as in, in our era as well, that we tend to justify our actions by our own human logic. And this applies to many things. We, we tend to, like, there's a justification for everything. If we kind of take a left-hand turn that we shouldn't take and uh, get in the weeds on any given subject, typically our knee-jerk reaction, or maybe even not knee-jerk, Maybe it's thought through, we, but we want to justify ourselves in that wrong move, okay? So that's just kind of a, that's not exactly um, uncommon for humans to take human understanding and put that, let that trump simple 
obedience to something that we should obey. Then in verse 16, he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. Now, I would suggest that this verse is saying that the new kingdom precepts that Jesus says he's preaching is going to call for some pressing into. It's going to require some hard work. I believe the law and the prophets were unsuccessful to the point where they faltered to inspire people to press into it. But rather, it seems like people were often looking for loopholes and transgressed the ultimate purposes of God many times. And the history of the children of Israel is is just fraught with illustration after illustration of knowing what should be done, but rather than pressing into that, uh, just did their own thing, did what they wanted to do. Deuteronomy, I think it is, talks about a person that, or maybe it's Proverbs, I'm getting maybe my things mixed up, but there's a passage in the Bible that says that there there are people that would get to a point where they could actually commit flagrant adultery, get up and wipe themselves off and say, I have done nothing wrong. Okay, that's, that's, that's what it's talking about. And rather than pressing into something, looking for loopholes. I believe that in this, in this whole subject of, um, of marriage, both divorce and polygamy were practiced in the Old Testament. That's, that's not an unknown thought to us. And both of those violated the real desire for God in marriage. And as another passage talks about, Jesus talked about in Matthew, he said, it was because of your hard hearts that this happened. The law and the prophets were not able to change the hard hearts of the people. It was, it was, it was an impossibility. They were not softened. They were not tempered. They were not changed by the Holy Ghost. And um, in, in the era that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, in, that, in this time, men are going to want to press into it. They're going to want to run that race that we were talking about this morning. Verse 17 then says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one tittle of the law to fail. I believe that what Jesus is saying here is the moral law of God always stands. And Jesus came to show us how that works and to strengthen that law. And that's what he spent his time in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount doing. He would say, you have heard that it has been said, but I say unto you. And he would strengthen that. He would strengthen the law. And and because he knew, because God knew that we don't have the power to even keep the Old Testament law, much less what we are required to uphold in the New Testament, he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gave us the power that we can fulfill this. And so we face these things squarely. And with the needed help from the Holy Spirit, we can live on a plane that is higher than the letter of the law. So I... My opinion is that verse 18 is basically Jesus for example. I think we could almost say for example, whosoever putteth away his wife. I think he knew that this, this subject of divorce and remarriage was a pet subject for the Pharisees and it came up for discussion and Jesus simply states a timeless principle here. He says no matter what the excuse, no matter what the spiritual sounding religious annulments no matter the unfortunate circumstances, here's how it is. Whoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. 
Whoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. Very simple words, not that hard to understand. And I believe, my personal opinion is, that Jesus is saying this will work in the context of the kingdom era. It hasn't worked very well before, but this can work. And here's why. Turn with me to Romans 7 now. This particular passage is um, not really, again, dealing with with any subject related to marriage, um, but rather it's 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 another teaching here that 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 Paul is talking about. He's talking about um, the law and so on, and and how that has passed away. And he says he uses marriage as an example in verse two and three. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband, so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. And I'm going to stop there, because... That's as much as he says on the subject. And again, he's using this as a an example for a bigger and different subject. But I think it at least gives an insight on the how Paul saw marriage and how he felt that he should he should he felt comfortable using this analogy for what he was uh, trying the point he was trying to make in the larger context here. All right, that's all the comment I'm going to make on that. Let's turn now to 1 Corinthians 7, which is, uh, which is now dealing with the subject. Paul is, is dealing with, with a variety of things related to marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. And I'm just going to read verses 10 to 16 because this relates to what we want to talk about this morning. So 1 Corinthians 7.10, And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such a case, but God hath called us to peace. And I could continue, but I'm going to stop there. So the the the... The, the, the verses here, again, are relatively easy to understand. Um, he's simply saying that, you know, you're supposed to live together. And even in the, in the event where there's an unbeliever on one, one spouse or the other, he's saying it is, it is, it is certainly, uh, highly encouraged. And it's a good thing if those two can still say, stay together. And he makes the point that it has something to do with the holiness or the cleanness I guess he used the word holy. 
He says, elsewhere your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And that maybe is a is maybe not easily understood as just a brief reading, but my feeling is what the apostle is trying to say is, even in the event where we have an unbeliever and a believer, if the two are willing to stay together, the the scenario for the children is so much better that the the um, the probability of the believer having a holy influence on the children will be will be quite a bit better than if the two are separated. And I, I couldn't help but think but of a of a situation that I am familiar with, where there was a large family. I think it was a family of ten or eleven. The father was not a believer, or if he if he professed to believe, he did not act like it. All right, he did not live like a believer, and he was a he was not a good man. And um, actually, there would have been some people that would have said that the 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 sister there in that case would have had grounds to leave him. But she made it her point to live with this man and and make it work. Every one of those eleven children are. God-fearing Christians today. And when questioned by somebody, one of these children were questioned by a person, why he thinks that every one of this large family are God-fearing practicing Christians today, when, when the home life was certainly subpar, he said it was because of my mother and her example. And I couldn't help but think of that when I read this. The, those children were sanctified or made holy by their believing mother's um, valiant attempt to make a good, a poor situation good, and may God bless her for that. But now let's let's look a little bit at this last verse we read. What does it mean that if the unbeliever departs, the brother or sister is not under bondage in any case, but God has called us to peace? What does that mean? There, there. There are many that would say that that freedom from bondage would mean that that person is now free from the person that has departed and he he or she is free to uh, pursue another marriage. But does that fit what Paul is saying? Does that fit the rest of the scripture? I would just take you over to verse 39 quickly at the end of this chapter where Paul is kind of Wrapping this discussion up, he says, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. Now, wouldn't it seem like Paul is contradicting himself to say in verse 39 that you are bound to your husband as long as he lives? And then over here he would say, um, if he leaves... Um, you're free. You're not bound. It would it would seem like the two don't don't fit together, and and I think there is a there is an explanation of this. I think the bondage that he's speaking to in verse sixteen is, okay, if the person is not pleased to dwell with you, you are not obligated to follow him or her or try to convince him or her that she must or or whatever. The peaceful thing may be in some situations for that separation to take place. He said, God has called us to peace, and if that's where peace lies, then pursue the peace. You're not bound to that for any reason. I'm going to throw out one caution here, um, or one thought. I tend to believe that in some instances, and maybe maybe I could even say most, I'm not 
prepared to say for sure, but I'm going to say at least some. The lack of peace in a relationship tends to lie at the feet of both parties. And there is enough fault to go situation that I know very well where, again, it was the man that I think the, the mother could have had any, any good reason to, to separate. And she went well beyond her call of, uh, her call of duty to live in peace with this man and she succeeded in that. And again, I would say God bless her for that. My conclusion is from the, the, if, if we take all scripture together that Paul speaks of the subjects, it seems like the most reasonable conclusion here is that the freedom from bondage does not mean a freedom to remarry. It simply means you are not obligated to live with a person that does not want to live with you. If that's the case, then you're not obligated to that. All right, we're going to pivot now. That's the last text that I'm going to read in the, in the uh, scriptures regarding divorce and remarriage. And what I would like to do now is talk about common reasons given for this and why there is, there is so much diversity of opinion on whether or not um, pursuing a remarriage after a divorce is biblical or not. So we're going to go back and we're going to revisit the exception clause that I've talked about in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. I'm going to just read them again to refresh your memory. In Matthew 19, 9, it says, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. And then in Matthew 5.32, But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. All right, so let's just park here and say that surely this must mean something. All right? Uh, It seems like Jesus pointedly makes a statement here that except for this reason, all right, so there is an exception clause there. We can't skirt out of that in any way. So just for um, more context, I looked in several other translations to see how this is translated in other versions. So the NIV uh, translate the word fornication, marital unfaithfulness. The Bible in basic English translates it loss of virtue. The Young's literal translation says except for whoredom. And my Greek English lexicon um, Bible translates the word fornication. So we have a variety of, of things here, that variety of ways that it is interpreted. What's right? How are we supposed to know what's right? Well, the most I... The, 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 the best I can do is to look in a concordance and just find out what the word that is translated fornication means in the Greek. And according to Strong's, the word means harlotry, which could include adultery and incest, idolatry and fornication. All right. So the word has a broad meaning. It is more um, inclusive than specific. All right. So it could actually mean other things. 
other than just specifically fornication. However, I found it interesting that everywhere that this word is used in the in our King James, it is translated fornication. However, not everywhere that fornication is used does it come from this word here. All right, so I hope you follow me there. Uh, this word is always translated fornication, but not every time the word fornication is used does it come from this word. But it is curious to me that that the King James translators chose to put fornication in here, as did the Greek-English lexicon that I looked at. I think it is, it is absolutely plausible to, um, to consider the fact that the listening audience to Jesus that day knew exactly what he meant. I really believe they did. We lack that context, all right? So we're left to make some deductions ourselves. Well, what did Jesus mean here? Okay, so there is a popular hypothesis that you've probably heard before, and I've heard numerous times in my life, that uh, that is often used to explain um, this situation. And to me, it makes a fair bit of sense, but I'm going to explain it to you, and then I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it, all right? So that the the explanation is, okay, it's in Matthew, but it's not in Luke, Mark, and Luke. Matthew's gospel was written primarily to Jewish people, Mark primarily to Gentiles. In the, in the Jewish world, when a person became engaged, as in the, and often Joseph and Mary are given for an illustration of this, they were betrothed, right? They were engaged to be married. That betrothal period was not easily broken, was not frivolously broken. In fact, my understanding is it was almost, if not, the same as being married. And so if you remember uh, how Joseph, it speaks in Matthew, how that he had decided he was going to put away his wife privately or secretly or not make a big show out of it because it says he was a just man. And so as the explanation goes, we have somebody that was going to divorce his wife, if you will, for fornication. Obviously, we understand that fornication is illicit uh, sexual relationships between unmarried people. So it fits nicely. The, the explanation fits beautifully that that is or could be what Jesus was referring to here. That he was speaking to Jewish people that understood Jewish culture and could understand that fornication <clears throat> applied to that, all right? Because, um, yeah, it, it just makes sense, all right? However, um, we would be remiss not to note that this particular explanation was not held until about 1950. That That's the first time that somebody that has researched this far more than I, says that he could come up with a, um, a, a time in the Mennonite church where this was thrown out as a plausible explanation for this particular exception clause. And um, I guess I think this person is enough of a researcher that I could probably trust his judgment on that. He says he could not find anything prior to about 1950 where this was the reason given. Now, I happen to have a fair amount of, of, um, of um, writing 
of the Mennonite church from about 1950 to 1980 in that era. And I quickly picked up some bound volumes of some writings I have there. And I found this, this reason giving quite often. So it obviously was something that resonated with our people. And we have kind of parked on that. And we have embraced that as a plausible explanation for what Jesus was saying here. However, um, we can't get around the fact that apparently that is a, a fairly recent explanation. So let's leave that. We're going to come back to that a little later, but let's leave that for now. But now let's just, let's just assume for a minute that Jesus didn't mean fornication, that what he actually did mean was a much broader use of the word, that it could include, you know, married, unmarried, incest, all these different things. And in the context, perhaps a better word would be to use, a better way to um, to translate it would be a marital unfaithfulness. Let, let's just use that now. Let's just assume that for a second. If you look at the sentence structure, and I'm just going to read to you Matthew 19.9, and I'm going to just put that in there, and I'm going to comment a little bit. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, all right, and shall be married to another, committeth adultery. If you think about the sentence structure there, the, the, the exception applies to the putting away. He's saying you're allowed to put away your wife in the instance of marital unfaithfulness. That's what he's saying. But when he says, if you marry another, you commit adultery. So if you take the exception out and say, whoever shall put away his wife and shall marry another committeth adultery, if you take that phrase out of there, it becomes clear that the exception seems to apply to the putting away and not to the remarriage. You have to read that into the text to make it work. You have to make an assumption that Jesus was saying that it's okay to remarry because he says it isn't okay, but you're making the assumption that the exception applies to both when the text does not necessarily say that. We could spend more time on this, and perhaps we should, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it rest with that. My personal belief is that it does apply to the separation, not to the remarriage, because of the other texts that we read that seem to indicate that. Now, there would be some that would argue that the listening audience would have, would have certainly understood a, a, uh, a, a place for remarriage if a divorce took place, because that, uh, that's the thing that, that tends to take place, that if a person is divorced, he's freed from that marriage, that he's free to marry another. That's the way we, that it's, it tends to be understood. So the argument goes. But I would say you still have to read that into the text. It isn't that clear <clears throat> that on this particular exception, if we, if we're going to say, okay, the exception's there, and, and even if we're going to just for one second borrow the possibility that this even allows for remarriage, let's just say that it does for a second, I would say this exception clause has been stretched far beyond its intention because most everybody believes themselves to be the innocent party in a separation. I I just know that. I've heard enough of this to know that every side has their story. And when there's a divorce or a separation takes place, every person on either side of that 
believes that they're the innocent party or they're the party that, that um, for whatever reason, um, is taking it on the chin. And, they, and, it, and it has been stretched beyond its original attention, even if that was the original attention. And I would also suggest that many, many people choose to ignore much more clear teaching on this subject and choose to park and anchor their actions to these four or five words on the subject when there is a much broader discussion and teaching in the New Testament on this. And almost every divorce and remarriage apologist will broaden the exception clause out to other infractions. Um, and once one is headed down that road, I have not observed an, a convenient stopping point. In fact, the uh, person I referred to the last time that I listened to a fair, fairly long exposition on this subject, he, he brought that right out. And he immediately said, this includes emotional misuse, verbal abuse, neglect, narcissism. He was willing to throw everything to the camp of the exception clause. And his reasoning was this. He said, every rule has an exception. And as an example, he gave this as an example. He said, think about the showbread. The showbread was reserved for priestly duties and the priests only. David comes and eats the showbread. That's an exception to a pretty firmly bound rule. And he also, he also said, the, the rule was that on the Sabbath day you don't work, but if the ox fell in the ditch, that was an exception. And he rattled off a few other things that, that he felt the Bible was clear that, that we can assume that every rule has an exception. And so this one likewise has an exception, and he was quite willing to, to cast many exceptions into the exception bucket. But I have a question. The, 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 the whole thing feels a little flimsy to me because well, well, for for several things, um, let, let's just let's just go to go to this exception thing here for a second. So the the Bible states that homosexuality is wrong, and, and homosexual marriage is wrong as well. Can we assume there's an exception to that? Is it safe to assume an exception there? Um, how about um, how about if um, if a person is um, is a thief. Uh, is there an exception for them too, maybe? Um, and we could go on and on. You, you see where this goes. If there's an exception to every rule, is there like no rules that have no exceptions? Is that how that works? You can, you can. And I would just say this. As far as I know, David is the only person that shouldn't have. As far as I know. It was a rare, rare, one-time-only exception. I don't believe there was oxen in ditches very often on the Sabbath day. That does not feel like fun even on Tuesday, to pull an ox out of a ditch. So it seems to me that people were fairly vigilant to keep their oxen in the barn or in the field and out of the ditch. But if it happened, even the staunchest Pharisee was willing to go out and pull the ox out of the ditch, but he sure didn't want to. All right, This was not that much fun. All right. So why are we willing to make exceptions the rule? See, that's where we have come in our society, and, and unfortunately, even our, in our broader churches in America and maybe even across the world today, the exception 
has become so popular that the rule is a joke. And we have to conclude that we have basically, largely in America anyway, churches have quit applying the rule in any meaningful way, and pretty much everything is an exception. It, it certainly does not seem the way it should be. All right, let's, um, let's talk about this now. This is another one that is, is a hard thing to talk about. What about the innocent party? How should we think about the innocent party? All right, so I just stated that it is my opinion that many times everybody believes they're innocent. And there's probably usually enough problems with all of us that um, any of us could deem ourselves innocent if we wanted to in, in a situation, of a sad situation like this. And this is a tough one. It, it tugs, naturally tugs at our human natural instincts that we want justice, all right? There's something about the human heart that desires justice. And there's also something about ever we see a wrong done. I don't, maybe that's not the way it is for you, but I, I have to admit there's something in me that I understand the feeling of injustice and the feeling of sympathy, sympathy whenever I see an injustice done. So surely when I see this or this happens and there is indeed an innocent party, is that person not freed from this marriage and free to find another life's companion? Well, there's, there's a few questions we need to ask here. Number one, what did the marriage vows mean after all? At some point, if you're married, you stood somewhere and said something to the effect that you would, you would commit to this person by your side till death do us part. That's what we all said here anyway, and I assume that's what the majority of people say. Well, what does that mean? If that's a vow, then what does that mean? All right? Is that somehow annulled if you're innocent? I would say, if anything, if you have any integrity at all, even in the case of innocence, you would say, for the sake of my integrity, I will keep my vow. That, that I will do. Ecclesiastes 5, 4, very familiar verse. When you vow a vow to God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. And that's exactly where the disciples were back there in Matthew when they said, Whew, I don't know. It seems to us it would be better not to marry than to take this chance. That's kind of what they were saying in essence. And uh, Jesus pointed out to them that, you know, sometimes people take chances, if you will, because they're people of integrity. You know, they know what a vow means. And if that doesn't work out, God forbid, they are then at that point willing to be eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That's what Jesus says. I would also ask this question. Where is the sustaining grace of God in a situation like this or any other thing? The grace of God, as we talked about this morning, if if the grace of God is not being experienced in my heart in any situation, it's my fault. It's not God's fault. Somehow I'm not tapping into that grace the way I should. How did the grace of God um, uh, keep Corey Ten Boom in in in, in a, such a good place when she was in the Nazi concentration camps? You talk about the grace of God expressing itself in ways that I know nothing about. It happened there. 
And, and I could give other illustrations. I'll stop with that one. My point is the grace of God is so much bigger than we understand and, and, and is not experienced to the degree that it can be till we're there. I do not wish to go through a Nazi concentration camp to figure out how big the grace of God is. I'm willing to take her word for it. My point is, um, it's there. And I'm going to say that the sustaining grace of God can help an innocent party through these problems as well. You know, God promises to be husbands to the widows. He promises to be the father of the fatherless. Can he not do something similar for the abandoned, neglected, innocent party in an unhappy circumstance such as this? Is that taking the grace of God too far to think that that couldn't happen? I also submit to you, as much as I don't necessarily encourage this, but in 1 Corinthians 7, people take Paul to task because they say, you know what, Paul really, he really over-encourages singleness. And I mean, he does. He, he puts that forth as a fairly viable option. He says at one point there, he said, I kind of wish everybody was just like us or like me. I don't necessarily agree with Paul there, but, you know, he's, he's okay with that opinion. The point I want to make, though, is Paul certainly um, presents singlehood as a very viable, if not superior, option. That's what he does. And, and I believe that in that whole discussion, it fits very well. Because he's saying is, you know what, you can serve the God, you can serve God very acceptably, singly, and you can experience the grace of God just as well as a married person. And at the end of the day, if you accept that and you embrace that, you can have as full a life as the person that is married. In fact, he makes the case you can have a fuller life. Again, I disagree with that a little bit, but it almost seems like Paul, Paul almost would almost bring that out a little bit. But uh, anyway, we'll let that. We won't go into that discussion too much. But um, certainly that would be something Paul would bring out. Now, I want to say here that I am in no way minimizing the unjustness and the pain that one would experience if indeed you were an innocent party in, a, in an unhappy situation like that. I can truly understand the desire to find another spouse after having experienced the joys, hopefully at some point, of marriage. Hopefully at some point this, this, this experience was a happy one for you. I certainly can understand that. And so in that way, I can understand the, the um, propensity, the tendency of people to say, you know what, in your situation, yes, it's okay. However, I personally cannot find any way to grant that permission from a simple reading of the Bible. And as I said before, there are other kingdom principles that fly in the face of human logic as well. Consider Jesus' call to turn the other cheek when someone smites you. Does that make any human sense? Any. But that's what he calls us to. And I would say the call to live a single life after an unhappy situation such as a a divorce is the way to experience the blessing of God. Paul said in Romans 8.18, and I think... It's, it's out of context, but I think the promise applies here. He says, I reckon. I suppose, he says, I think, 
that the sufferings of this present time, and I will say that that situation could be cast into the bucket of suffering. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And somehow or the other, I don't think it's taking, it's taking things too far to say that a person out of the integrity of his heart and out of his reliance on the grace of God chooses to live a single life after an unhappy divorce will not receive manifold blessings in this life and in the life to come. I do not believe God overlooks that. I do not think so. You know what? I'm not going to get through this. If I keep going, I'm just going to keep you here too long. So I'm just going to crash land it one more time. It's a little early, but I'm just, if I go to the next point, it's going to get too late. So um, we're going to do it one more time, and I guess there's going to be another sermon out of this. But uh, thank you very much again for, for listening to me again this morning on this subject. I hope you found it helpful. We want to look at a few more uh, common thoughts on this subject, if you will, and uh, get some historical context on it. Um, the next time. So thank you very much. Let's kneel for prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you so much for your presence here. We thank you for your teaching and your word that has given us so many good things that we can learn from, especially on this subject of, of divorce and remarriage. Lord, we know it's a very tough one, a very hard one, not one that we... Um, like even thinking about. And Lord, we thank you so much for your, um, your uh, grace that you have given us, the, um, the, the lines that have fallen to us in pleasant places that we have by and large experienced happiness in our homes and in our marriages. And Lord, help us to be um, husbands that love our wives and wives that are willing to submit to our husbands and we can find that peace and rest and, and the, uh, the manifold blessings that come from serving you and um, experiencing your um, your goodness in our lives through this happy experience. And Lord, we pray for the many, many, many thousands and millions of people that are living in very tumultuous relationships and, and uh, not even a relationship at all and have pretty much followed carnality and the wiles of the devil in this particular arena. Lord, we know our country is fraught with these problems. And God, I just pray that where there are indeed innocent people out there, that you would bless them, that you would give them grace to uh, sustain them in these dark and difficult times. And Lord, um, help us to be sympathetic people, to understand that uh, indeed we have blessings that we do not deserve. So God, I pray for the people and our, our brothers and sisters in this congregation that are not with us this morning. Bless them where they are. And, uh, Lord, I pray that we could come back together at a future time and enjoy fellowship with one another. We ask this in your name.